Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly happy hour here on Trending with Timory. It's great to be with you. If you have a question about happiness, be happy to take it. The number is one 888 914-9149. Joining me in just a few minutes will be Dr. Nicholas Carderis. He's the author of the new book, Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. We're going to unpack a couple very important topics, including how technology is changing brain architecture and rules for how to navigate this in the home, especially with children. He actually wrote one of my favorite books called Glow Kids, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids and How to Break the Trans. Challenges are real today when it comes to technology, and the truth is it is impacting the bottom line of happiness for adults, for children, how families interact with one another. The challenges I think often we aren't willing to make a change. The convenience of technology is incredible, but the convenience of technology is also part of what is impacting the major increase in anxiety and depression among other personality disorders and crises today. We're going to talk about whether we should resist the metaverse or not in virtual reality. Okay, what I want to talk about now, something that has been bothering me for years, and I think it relates to this whole topic of happiness on a day-to-day basis. I can definitely tell you something that triggers my emotional happiness, that momentary emotion that is fleeting, because that's always something we try to talk about here on Trending, that happiness is fleeting, it's momentary, it lasts and... And then it goes away, like sorrow, like anger, uh, like giddiness, all of these and come and go. Well, one thing that is just an absolute happiness killer for me is self-checkout. Self-checkout at the store where you're trying to go and just purchase some groceries. It might, it could be anything from a pack of gum, a glass of milk, a bottle of whatever it might be. And, or it might be all of your groceries, your full shopping list. And some of us are forced into some of the only options we have today are self-checkout in order to make it through the store. So give me your thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts on self-checkouts. We're going to talk about these because more are ahead. And I am wondering how we should interact with self-checkouts, whether or not we should. Numbers 1-888-914-9149. Also, the second most grossing film of the year worldwide in box offices has been Jurassic World, a Dominion. But I'm fascinated about some of the things that have been said about Bryce Dallas Howard and pressure that was placed on her to meet certain standards. We'll talk about that later here on the show. Joining me now is Dr. Nicholas Carderis. He is the author of the latest book, 
Digital Madness just hit the shelf, how social media is driving our mental health crisis and how to restore our sanity. You can find his work at omegarecovery.org. We'll post a link to the new book as well as his website. He's the CEO of Omega Recovery that helps treat young people struggling with substance addiction, mental health, and or addiction issues. A fantastic resource for all parents, but also for us adults. This book, Digital Madness, is a true aid in the challenges facing us today. Dr. Carderis is a foremost technology addiction expert. He's an Ivy League-educated psychologist, and he's taught neuropsychology at the doctoral level. As I mentioned, he's written one of my favorite books on children, Glow Kids, how screen addiction is hijacking our kids, and how to break the trans. We'll post links to all of these awesome resources from Dr. Carderis. But for today, I want to discuss how technology is changing brain architecture and rules for how to navigate this in our homes, especially with children. Dr. Carderis, what should we maybe do in changing our mindsets to start off with and understanding the changing brain chemistry in technology's influence on us today? Yeah, that's great questions. And thanks for having me on the show again, Timur. It's always a pleasure to be here. And so, I mean, when we think about how the uh, brain gets impacted by our, our love affair with technology and our hyper immersion with technology, there's two really main uh, fundamental things to think about. Technology and let's call it screen time um, is essentially creating, a, it's priming young people, infants, children, teenagers towards impulsivity. Um, it, it was fascinating. There were some very fascinating fMRI brain imaging studies that looked at the effects of screen time on the prefrontal cortex um, and, and it found that it had almost the exact same impact as substance abuse does on the prefrontal cortex, which is why I started calling it digital heroin, or some people called it electronic cocaine. Um, it actually, the, the prefrontal cortex is that part of the brain that's called our executive functioning, and it regulates our impulsivity, our consequential thinking, our ability to make decisions. And, and so if you do, if you ingest or engage in any kind of activity that compromises your prefrontal cortex, makes it less robust, you're going to be much more highly impulsive. And, and impulsivity is the handmaiden for a lot of other toxic issues like addiction and all sorts of other bad things that happen in people's lives. So what they saw in that brain imaging research is that the DGM, the dense gray matter of the prefrontal cortex actually begins to shrink and atrophy with increased chronic screen time. So that in and of itself primes impulsivity. And then there, there's other things that we can hypothesize. You know, we know that the dopamine effect that uh, technology is very um, arousing to the brain. So it creates the uh, same sort of addictive cycle as we call the, the dopamine reward loop. So it's this habit forming addictive piece that then also happens to make our brains much more impulsive and makes us as human beings much more impulsive. And then there's a, fi a final layer that I talk about in my most recent book where I, I hypothesize that it's making us binary thinkers, that, that the younger we are, uh, once we immerse ourselves into things like social media, the more black and white we begin to see the world, the less nuanced and critical thinking we are. So that, and that's my 30,000 foot view description. <laughs> you know, it's something that stood out to me when you were talking, Dr. Carderis, was how the millennial generation has been pegged as a very passionate generation, a generation that really 
gets behind the idea of causes and wants to work with causes, mm-hmm. a, a plethora of causes, you know, and everything from mm-hmm. animals, humanitarian, you name it. But I'm almost thinking that I see this that has begun with the millennial generation down to Gen Z, that I think part of that is that binary thinking and that impulsivity uh, that we're actually seeing in part partially maybe confused for passion, where maybe it's this almost one one of thinking and they're fixated on it and you know they start to get into the algorithms of social media and they start to focus 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 on this topic and yes it's good to be passionate but maybe part of it is that they're being pulled into this world and with impulsivity this is part of this drive where so many millennials i think are struggling in their functions today whether it be career family not family because of this confusion of being pegged as passionate but i think more so almost being no. uh, sucked in by the technology crisis of today and even more so with the next generation under that of Gen Z. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I think that's a really insightful and great point that you make, that it sort of taps into this, let's call it the passion potential of a lot of our young people. They're very cause-oriented. And let's face it, a lot of adolescents and young adults throughout time, you, you know, that's historically, that's been the idealistic generation, right? You know, you get to a certain age and you're still very passionate about things. And I think technology can hijack that passion because what it does is it sort of, it, it, it adds kerosene to the passion, but it doesn't add anything to the brakes or it doesn't add any critical thinking to that. So you become all passion and no critique or, or no ability to sort of um, use that passion. So what we're seeing is a lot of young people that are passionate, but they're all passion. Um, they're, they're not able to sort of have that balance point, you know, and I guess in, you know, if I were to use Freudian terms, it'd be all it and no superego, right? It'd be, it's all <laughs> well, there's emotion no intellectualism. And passion, right? Yeah, there's no conversation. Yeah. You can't challenge their belief. Uh, you can't question it. You can't even make them feel even the slightest criticized. Uh, that whole snowflake <laughs> idea of today. You'll have a meltdown. Defend, You'll have a meltdown. Right, exactly. Right. Even with the things they believe in, they can't even handle that. Well, that's what I, you know, that's what really drove me to write this most recent book. In the last four or five years, you know, it was we all understood that we were getting more and more habituated to technology. But then it was, why are young people getting so much more, um, you know, let's call it the snowflake effect, or so much more reactive and emotionally unstable? And you began to see that there was no ability to um, look at a situation in any sort of objective way. It was all emotion. And, and in fact, it was all hyper emotion because I think that's what the algorithm does is it amplifies the emotional piece and it does, it feeds the lizard brain, but it doesn't, it doesn't feed that other part, you know, which is the nuanced critical thinking part. So that's essentially been disabled. And so now you have people that are all, all emotion, all passion and nothing else. And, and that's a very unbalanced and healthy way to be as a person and as a society. That's Dr. Nicholas Carderas joining us here on Trending with Timory. His new book, Digital Madness, I highly recommend for all of us to read. I told my husband, you have to read it. You can't just listen to my conversations with Dr. Carderas. You have to read the book. So we posted a link on social media. You mentioned decrease in gray matter in the prefrontal cortex due to over-technology use and this leading to impulsivity among other crises. I think that it's easy for us to think, oh, well, I've got my technology use under control or I'm an adult and everything's fine or, hey, it's really great for kids to learn with technology because it helps them to learn better. But in your book, Digital Madness, you 
use the boiling frogs analogy with regard to technology. Can you explain that link for us? Yeah, it's basically uh, the metaphor, the analogy of when things happen to a person gradually, you're not aware of their toxic effect because they happen inch by inch or uh, one degree at a time. And the, bo- the boiling water frog analogy, it's, you know, whether it's urban legend or how factual it is, but it's, it's the old metaphor of if you put a frog in water and you start heating up the water, um, the frog sits still and you could increase the temperature of the water up until it reaches a boiling point. And because it's happened so gradually, the, the frog doesn't jump out of the water to boil itself. It'll actually boil alive. But if you th- were to drop a frog in boiling water, it would jump out immediately. And, and so sometimes that's used as a metaphor for, let's call it the gradual effect, that we, we accept things when they happen to us gradually. And, and even though in the grand scheme of things, technology has been sort of the blink of an eye, really when from the, um, you know, from the steam engine to the search engine has been, you know, in evolutionary terms, it's been really a split second. But in terms of our own lifetimes, things have evolved with our technological dependence year by year, decade by decade, somewhat gradually. And so we, we're, we're less aware of it to the point where all of a sudden we realize, oh, my God, I'm spending 10 to 12 hours a day in front of a screen. I don't have any more face-to-face friends. I'm really mm-hmm. depressed and feel empty in my life. All these things have happened and yet I haven't even realized it because not only have I been, has the water been gradually uh, heated up, but I've been distracted. And distraction, we know, is a great device or psychological tool to also keep people uh, under aware of their um, circumstances or of their, mm-hmm. of their uh, imprisonment. Yeah, it's a stupefied conversation, stymied social skills, zero self-reflection, sorrowful isolation, anxious isolation, you know, all of these things that are happening today. And we like to point out that person and say, okay, that person's struggling because of this. But I think that all of us are guilty in some way of all of these things occurring, even if it's just that inability to stand for 15 minutes in line at the airport looking up and just people watching or maybe smiling as someone walks past you, as simple as that may be, or even saying hello when someone sits next to you on the airplane. I I think you, I feel like the oddest person around if I try to make contact and say hello to the person that's going to sit next to me in this tube on an airplane for six hours. Uh, But that's perfectly normal today. And that wasn't the case prior to technology. So this whole idea that no one is safe, I think, is really true. Dr. Carderis, how do we navigate screens in the home? What have you done? I know you have two, I believe, teenage boys. Mm-hmm. Where where do we go with this? And by the way, I just have to kind of chime in and agree with you so much about our social norms have changed so much now, right? If you try to start a conversation mm-hmm. with a person on the plane next to you, you know, they'll, they'll call the flight attendant and, you know, call, call the FBI and get you, you know, who is this person invading my privacy (laughs) or even the the bigger joke is right is it's how invasive we find it if somebody calls us now Uh, i mean a couple of colleagues and friends of mine have said the same thing they're like my god that person called me they didn't text me how dare they actually make my were they actually expecting me to pick up and speak to them on the phone how dare they you know so so, they claim gen z answers hello Right. And so it's definitely impacted really, really critical social norms and lubricants that we've established that really, really made us healthy and well 
the, the, the village mentality type of mindset where we did things around the, the fire and we did things as a community, all those things have, again, in, in boiling water, frog-like fashion, have dissipated over the decades. You know, faith-based organizations, YMCA, boys, uh, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, all those kinds of things that gave people opportunities to socialize and get a sense of connection and, and empowerment and a sense of, uh, well, that has, is a really harder and harder. You have to really more proactively lean into that. So in answer to your question about even with my own children, you can't be a lazy parent anymore. You, you can't think you can take your foot off the gas on parenting and think that somehow our, the school will raise our child or, or the society, you know, will raise our kids. You can't be a latchkey, a parent with a latchkey kid anymore because that kid is going to not grow up into uh, a very healthy adult. And so counter, you know, I'm really big on, we're not, you know, let me back up. I love the the expression that we can't change the ocean. The ocean's going to be turbulent, but we can become better swimmers. So how do we help our children be, become better swimmers? Because we're not getting rid of social media. We're not going to be all able right. to go Amish. Some are, but counterbalancing <laughs> activities, counterbalancing experiences. So this goes back to other kinds of community organizations, whether they're faith-based, whether it's sports, whether it's music, face-to-face -face social interactions that give not only a sense of community and identity, genuine intrinsic identity, uh, volunteerism is a big one. So I try to expose my my two sons who are have identical twin boys. We've traveled the world a lot. They've had the opportunity to do a lot of volunteerism around the world. They've seen different cultures and um, and, and understand the they have some perspective of where we are as a society because of they've seen other cultures. Um, but really leaned into sports and music and reading. Um, if you lean into sports, reading, and, and, and music, I think those are three big immunizing uh, agents. And so that then you could at least manage the technology so it doesn't become um, overwhelming. And that goes back to a very classical understanding of even a boy's formation, that music, sports, and reading are all important. I think sometimes we throw the music out thinking for some reason that that's not an important part of a boy's education or even justify, oh, he doesn't like to read as much as my daughter. It's been interesting, Dr. Carter. So I'm a mom of two, one on the way, and one is a little toddler running around. And we don't do screens. Thank you. Uh, we don't do screens other than occasional FaceTime with family or family photos. Mm -hmm. And we're waiting until age two for even, you know, exposure mm -hmm. to playing a movie for her. And it's funny because people mm -hmm. hear me say, they go, wow, zero screens ever. And, and it's not an absolute, you know, of course, there are plenty of people who if they're playing with their your kid, the go to is to put a show on for them. <laughs> we experience this yeah. all the time. You know, people love to just, you know, that's what they do. Um, and it's interesting because people are surprised by it and I'm trying to explain well if you're just going to let them see stuff at two well, why not now and I said well they'll see an occasional movie it's not a thing that we're going to have as a daily occurrence and it's interesting because mm -hmm. it's become such a norm in our society today for constant entertainment for us as adults and as children and so and people don't understand the, the developmental difference I don't mean to interrupt you Timur please but, do. But no please do people don't, they under, underestimate the importance of developmental stages in, in a child's development. There's a big difference between a one-year-old and an 11-year-old and, and developmentally uh, at different stages, 
children need certain things. One of the best things that you can do neurophysiologically for your infant is to engender boredom because boredom then leads to, as the child develops, it leads to they're, they're developing their, what's called their active imagination. And an active imagination builds neurosynaptic pathways of creativity. Um, a child that is sitting in a rocker or in a stroller that has a screen glued in front of their face is getting externally stimulated and they're not using any of their neurosynaptic muscles to create the imagery. So they're not using their imagination. They're not playing make-believe with their toddler friend or, or they're not imagining which is very neurosynaptically important at that stage of infancy, what they're doing is they're getting it uh, spoon-fed to them from a device. And so now that part of their brain, that is the part of the brain that should be devoted to creativity and active imagination, uh, doesn't develop and begins to atrophy. And so some of the teenagers that I work with who have been raised you know, by tablets in the crib are some of the most profoundly uh, boring, they're the most unimaginative kids because they're entertainment-seeking missiles who don't know how to uh, entertain themselves or how to create or think. Um, and and it's the, the from the parents' point of view, it's a twofold thing, right? We've drank the Kool-Aid that we think we have to give our children screens in the crib because they'll be behind. That's the narrative. They're, I don't want my children mm -hmm, to fall exactly. behind. We're in a technological society, right. not realizing that you're developmentally stunting your child if you prematurely expose them to screen time. And then, of course, there's also the, the digital babysitter effect. It's harder mm -hmm. to raise mm -hmm. a child, a, a low-tech kid. It takes more work and effort. And, and mm -hmm. we're tired as parents, and it's easy to sort of rationalize it, even though most parents intuitively know it's not good. You know, we'll we'll drink the Kool Aid that says, "Oh, it's uh, it's baby Einstein. It's educational screen time," and that was all found to be nonsense. There there was no benefit in infancy with screen time. Well, and sometimes I think it's hard because parents are trying to navigate this. And let's say you have, you know, one mom of a two-year-old saying, my child knows her ABCs and she did it because she watched, you know, these educational shows. And then another mom's like, well, my my kid's two years old, but they play outside and they don't know their ABCs. But <laughs> there's, I think, that comparison, but there are different things that are developing, which is what it sounds like you're saying, that are important that need to occur earlier on. Before we jump into the hardcore education that might be happening via technology, but isn't necessarily necessary right away. Well, in countries like Finland, they don't even do the alphabet and ABCs till about second grade because they understand that there are other uh, ways of learning that are happening. Uh, Montessori schools also similarly, Maria Montessori, her method also was the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the whole child learning where you're learning colors and sounds and sensory awareness before you get into the memorization uh, part of the of, of, of pedagogy or of education and and so it's it's this idea that even when you do think about um, what what we used to call educational television and here I'm talking about mr. Rogers or Sesame Street think about mr. Rogers and what that screen experience was like compared to like a Nickelodeon educational show which is almost exactly the same as, uh, as a music video it's very rapid cuts it's a lot of music, flashing sounds. It's a lot of bells and whistles to get the attention of the infant who has now become um, stimulation dependent. 
right? Because now Nickelodeon is competing for kids who are gaming and on all sorts of flashing devices. And so now that they have to have these rapid cuts and, and very stimulating um, sensory things, which only further increase the propensity for ADHD. And there's a lot of research about that. But when you look at Mr. Rogers, it was one long single camera. Um, and it was one long, it, there was no rapid cuts. He would go in, he would put on his little sweater, zip, zip, he put his sneakers on. And <laughs> it was very slow moving. And it, it, it helped you develop your ability to attend, to focus, to concentrate. Um, if Mr. Rogers was a series of rapid cuts and videos and lights and flashing gizmos, um, the children that watched Mr. Rogers would grow up very different uh, from an attentional standpoint, from an ADHD perspective. And that difference, I think, is so stark and it's surprising when we think about it. You know, people might think that, wow, there's been a change in technology. It's because of technological advancements, but it's actually out of necessity because of this competition, as you're saying, in the marketplace for eyeballs, for eyeballs to consume the content that the company wants you to consume. That's been Dr. Nicholas Carderis here on Trending with Tim. We're going to come back and we'll talk about whether or not we should resist things such as the metaverse and virtual reality. He's the author of the new book I highly recommend everyone needs to read. Parents, non-parents, it's not about kids specifically, but it does impact your children. Digital madness, how social media is driving your mental health crisis. I'll be right back here on Trending. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to our weekly happy hour here on Trending. Do you like, not like self-checkouts? We're going to talk about that in a moment. I really am curious to hear your thoughts. 1-888-914-9149 because the future is coming with more self-checkouts. Also, second top grossing film of the year worldwide has been Jurassic World Dominion. We're going to talk about a little bit of the controversy behind the scenes on the film. Joining me now is Dr. Nicholas Carderis. He's the author of the new book, Hot Off the Press, Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. This is a book that you must pick up. We posted links on social media. My baby girl just snuck in real quick. <laughs> She's up a little late today. She took a nap. Um, so we're going to talk about an important topic of the metaverse. It's discussed in the book. And Dr. Nicholas Carderis is the leading expert in technology addiction. He's treating it, especially with children today. He works for Omega Recovery or is the founder of Omega Recovery. We'll post a link to that on social media as well if you need help working with your children. But the metaverse is something that isn't going anywhere. Virtual reality is the future in many people's eyes. Dr. Carderis, should we resist the metaverse in virtual reality in our day-to-day interactions or just in general? Yeah, to, to mis-paraphrase my Star Trek, uh, the Borg line, resistance is not futile. And yes, we absolutely need to resist it. It's quite honestly, Timber, it's insane. Um, it, it's insane because once upon a time, because you know, you know, I've studied some of the big tech oligarchs. Um, these are really profoundly um, egomaniacal, um, egomaniacal, um, tech-obsessed men with god complexes. I mean, I can't put it any other way. And their their god, their 
holy grail, and I write about this in Digital Madness, is, is something called the singularity. And one of the senior Google executives wrote the book about the, the, the singularity is, is this, um, Ray Kurzweil is, this, is the high priest of the, uh, the tech moguls. The singularity is the merger, the near future merger of humanity and technology into a, a super intelligence. Into, it's, it's kind of like mixing AI and humans in, a, well, it's, the phrase that they use is transhumanism. And, and then I, I'm not making this up. This is Ray Kurzweil wrote a book, The Singularity is Near, and, and, and Bill Gates raves about him. And, and he's followed by Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who are obsessed with um, defying death. These are not people that have a, a spiritual or faith-based belief like you and I may have. These are people that believe that death is the end. And they think that because they are the most powerful people that have ever lived in the history of the earth, that they can defy death with technology. And, and again, I'm not making this up. You could just Google Ray Kurzweil and Google the singularity and, and what they believe in. And, and so part of that is they need resources and they need to keep us, um, the masses, uh, consuming, distracted, uh, like, any other, uh, like any other type of addiction. Any population that's addicted is easily malleable and easily monetized and easily exploited. So while we're addicted to their products, they have an agenda. You know, I used to think their agenda was just plain good old greed, uh, but this goes beyond greed. Um, and if you look at, if you read some of the biography of Mark Zuckerberg, he's, <laughs> he's, he's idolized Augustus Caesar since he was a child he went to Rome and, uh, his, and it's quoted, there was several articles about how much time he was spending near Augustus statues and, and how he would end every Facebook meeting with domination and screaming it out at the top of his lungs and was obsessed with um, <laughs> essentially um, being the most powerful czar-like figure. And, and most people that are uh, trying to, be conquer the world you know you need currency you need you need follow the population you know, over two billion people are on facebook now and he needed land and since he couldn't acquire land in the traditional sense well he tried to buy part of hawaii but the island of Kauai, um he created the metaverse and you know we're being sold the metaverse is this great place that we can live in alternate synthetic reality but it's one that he would curate and control and monetize and data mine. I don't want that. I don't want that for my children. I don't think any of us who are human sentient organisms with God-given abilities want to be put in some digital cage that's controlled by, by the very unwell Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so that's why I think we should avoid it at all costs. Well, what you're talking about is absolute manipulation of our human actions and living not in a corporal means by which we were created to mm -hmm. live, you know, living in this parallel universe. And I thought this was a thing that we read about for entertainment in comic books. And then it becomes right. Marvel films and many various spinoffs uh, and a lot of what we're seeing today in stories. 
But this is what people are saying. And Mark Zuckerberg even talks about how he doesn't, he said, think something along the lines of think about all the things you don't physically need in your life that you can have in the metaverse, you know, have digitally. And in your book, you actually yeah. talk about being at a conference where you saw an example of virtual reality, which VR is a mm. part of the metaverse, in which cows were being raised with <laughs> VR, which is astounding. Yeah. Can you share about that? Yeah, I was uh, I was speaking at a conference at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, and the Commonwealth Club is a really pretty cool place. It's where Franklin Roosevelt has spoken. It's a very it's one of the oldest, um, grand old institutional public forums where um, things would happen. And, and anyway, it was a conference called uh, Humanity at a Crossroads, and it was uh, different uh, people from all over the world that were looking at different uh, from a different lenses of what some of the dangers to humanity were. This was everything from bioengineering to AI to some of the stuff that I've written about. Um, and, and one of the speakers, and this was a sold out event, and there was hundreds of people in the audience. And one of the speakers was from, um, from the Netherlands, and he was a scientist. And when he gave his presentation, there was a huge giant screen. And up on the screen, one of his slides that came up was a picture of a cow wearing holographic uh, hololens wearing holographic eyewear and er initially everybody laughed because it was such a surreal image it seemed like a joke and then he began to explain that this was what uh, was being developed that uh, people uh, in certain certain uh, uh, farming and certain uh, uh, I'm getting short of my words here certain um, cow uh, People who graze farmers, certain, but but it was more ranchers. agribusiness, ranchers. But I guess this was this was not mom and pop ranchers. This was larger agribusiness. They were experimenting with putting cows in virtual reality because uh, a cow that is in virtual reality and believes that it's free range and in a natural pasture, as opposed to being confined in a. As we know, cows are being grazed in ways that are really inhumane and unhealthy. They're very small and three foot by two foot enclosures in their own feces. And they have to be given large amounts of antibiotics because of that, because they're so unhealthy and large, and, and they're given large amounts of hormones so they can mature faster. So we have these profoundly unwell cows in these coops in these, in these, in these unhealthy cages. And so if they're given the illusion of freedom, they produce more milk. I mean, that's the bottom line that a cow that gets tricked into believing that it's free when it's not free is more, is a more productive cow. And that struck me like a thunderbolt because it was just, to me, the essence of what's happening. Uh, we're essentially all being put in digital cages, and but we're given the illusion that we're free range when we're not. Our choices are being made for us. Algorithms are directing how we shop, how we vote, how we, what we consume, what we see. And, and we think we have a certain amount of free will, but our free will is being um, uh, technologically modified, and we don't even know it. And, and, and that's the part where uh, I'm suggesting to people to, if we were like those cows, remove your, your headwear and really see what's happening. There's manipulation and behavior modification 2.0, or forget 2.0, 100.0 happening in ways that we can't even fathom i mean we have glimpses of it in documentaries like the social dilemma where where some of the big tech defectors have shown us the playbook of how 
just how much we're being manipulated on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute basis through technology. Um, but there's much that we're not even aware of at this point in terms of how our humanity is being stripped from us. You know, I keep thinking about how we live in a culture that has become so relativistic. Everything is what I think it is. You know, my reality is my reality. Your reality is your reality. This whole you know, phrase, a lot of people don't realize it, of you do you. You know, you do what you believe and I'll do what I believe and, you know, enjoy that and coexist in that reality. But it's fascinating because with virtual reality in the metaverse, it's our own reality lived out but simulated by technology. And that's frightening. So, you know, the question is, okay, so then do you take that cow that you saw with glasses that perceives it's free range, but is really just in the muck and filthy circumstances, and can we then label that as a free range cow and say because it believes that it is, it is, and therefore it's producing differently? Well, same with us. Just because we are living in our own simulated reality, does that mean that that is true? And we're actually talking about insanity here. And the other byproduct of that is a, is a tech curated narcissism, a tech curated egocentrism. And, and I happen to see that on the clinical front lines because I have these clinics treating young adults. We've seen such a huge spike in personality disorders like borderline personality disorders, which is typified by A, black and white thinking, but also B, by a lot of um, egocentric, narcissistic, I'm the center of the universe-like tendencies or narcissistic personality disorder. And so think about, forget virtual reality for a moment. Let's go, let's go back a few years, even traditional technology, just regular good old immersive screens, two-dimensional screens, where you're, if you're a child or a teenager growing up with screen time, your digital world is literally curated in your image because of predictive algorithms, um, you will get sent ads and information and chats and things related to your interests. And so it begins to almost feed into a sense of magical thinking. Uh, I, I, I searched for shoes and all of a sudden shoes surround me. And so what that does for a young person or a child, it, it, it makes them think that they're the center of the universe because they are the center of their digital universe. The digital universe is made in their image. And, and so how can you not have a God complex if you're a young kid growing up when everything seems to unfold in front of you? That didn't happen with television. When you and I were growing up watching television, the show was the show and they didn't, they didn't give us uh, they didn't give us a recommended feed that that was curated for what our interests were. So now we think that our interests are everybody else's interests. So now we think we <laughs> were the center of things. And that's a real problem. That's a real mm. problem. I really do believe, and especially with a lot of the research, such as research coming out from you and others, that we should resist the metaverse and this virtual reality. I don't allow it to be a day-to-day. There are elements, for example, I don't I don't really see personally where virtual reality can be a day-to-day tool just yet. I'm sure there are people who think so. But, you know, use our technology as tools. Don't let it become a way of living. And I think that's the challenge all of us have today. Dr. Nicholas Carderis is the author of a book we all need to dive into and unpack to understand the social sciences, the impact, and the future of how we use our technology. The book's called Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. Dr. Nick 
Glyce Carderis can also be found at omegarecovery.org, his Omega Recovery Center. That's omegarecovery.org. We posted links on social media. And if you want to look up him and his work, it's Dr. Nicholas Carderis. Carderis spelled K-A-R-D-A-R-A-S. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. We'll be right back. Join me continued for our weekly happy hour. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to our weekly happy hour here on Trending. If you'd like a free copy of Patrick Madrid's new book, Inquisition, this is your last chance. Get yours before they're all gone at relevantradio.com slash quiz. Test your knowledge of Catholic faith and have fun quizzing your family and friends. Get a free copy of Inquisition today before it's too late. There are no shipping or handling charges. Book is absolutely free, so don't miss out. Sign up now at relevantradio.com slash quiz. That's relevantradio.com slash quiz. Okay, welcome back to our weekly happy hour. There's something that I cannot stand. Absolutely cannot stand. It's our weekly happy hour. We're talking earlier about emotions and how emotions are fleeting. They come and go sorrow, giddiness, even happiness. It's an emotion. It's fleeting. Well, my happiness is very fleeting when the only options at a grocery store or a store in general today is self-checkout. Wall Street Journal and a lot of the research points to an increase in self-checkouts. And I saw this and it was a trigger moment for me. I cannot tell you that I loathe with a passion the double scanning, the wait, looking up the codes, no help as your thing is not letting you leave to check out. And, you know, you're debating whether or not you pick everything up and go to another aisle where there are only now one or two aisles open with live in-person people to help you. I refuse. I cannot do self-checkout. It was terrible. Not long after I moved to the Midwest, the closest grocery store was 100% self-checkout. 100% self-checkout. I hated it. It was it was as if you were in this kind of surreal world where you weren't allowed to have any interaction with other human beings. It, the, I always have the worst luck too where you, you are going through the self-checkout and you place the item in the wrong place and it starts beeping at you saying that item is not is not in the right place or item has not been bagged or did you or didn't you not bag it. I digress. You know my complaints. Most people have complaints about self-checkouts. It's been interesting over the last few years. Big surprise. They're two times more widespread than before. And 30% of all grocery store transactions in 2021 were actually self-checkout. Who really chooses and prefers self-checkout? I don't think very many people do. I think there are people who do like it and maybe are somehow good at it. I am not that person. This is one of those things where you feel like an old person with technology. That's how I feel with self-checkouts. It just does not go well. I was very upset when Costco incorporated self-checkouts because they're decreasing the number of options for in-person checkouts. I refuse. I will never do Costco self-checkout or anywhere else. In some stores, you have very little options maybe only one aisle open with an in-person checker okay my, my i have a disagreement here patrick my producer patrick Log is saying he loves self-checkouts with all capital letters to me right now said so especially when i have fewer items so go tell me on social media what you think about social self-checkouts 
I do think that this could be the resistance hour of our weekly happy hour. I do think there needs to be a level of resistance to self-checkouts. While I understand in terms of the economy right now with a lot of people still refusing to work and major work shortages, I do understand why uh, companies are having to turn towards self-checkouts in order to continue to function. But on a human dimension very basic human interactive dimension, I think we need to ask a question such as, what are we missing when we get rid of self-checkouts? Well, I think the reason many people are okay with self-checkouts today is because of how little we actually interact at times with the checker, with the person bagging our groceries. It's so easy to not say hello, look down at your technology, um, it's easy, not again, not to engage. But what we're missing is the opportunity to say hello, to be helped by another human being, to engage, to ask questions, to learn, even to get to know them. You know, I love having you know a local grocery store that I can consistently go to, and there aren't too many people that work there, and you actually recognize and get to know you know whether it's the person at the meat counter or the checker that checks you out, and maybe you try to go to the same checker more often. Things like that are good to humanize yet again what is meant to be a social interaction. And I think that there needs to be a little bit of a warning for us when self-checkouts become such a norm. Maybe in part it's because people don't want to take on jobs such as self-checkout, such as being a checker, because they have been so dehumanized in the way we interact with them. I, I'm guilty of this. It's sometimes easy to be on the phone while you're running errands or running through a checkout. And I've really tried over the last five or six years to put down the phone, even if I've been on the phone, say, hold on and just you know, put it on mute or put it in my pocket while I'm checking out and actually engage with the person in front of me instead of ignoring them. It's the same thing as sitting, we were talking earlier in an airplane and how for some reason it's acceptable today to avoid all eye contact and never say hello to the very person you're going to be sitting in this enclosed tube with for two hours or six hours. I find it fascinating that we do that, that we allow that social interaction to be so closed off that we can't even make eye contact or smile or say hello. I mean, imagine if you got to know someone in a know their name. It's disarming when sometimes people are willing to share that information so forthcomingly. And yet we compare that to an airplane. I think all of us can say, yes, interactions happening on an airplane or lack of interactions. That's not right. Something I can work on. But do we think that about the shorter, more common interactions we have, for example, at the grocery store, when we are interacting with the grocer, the bagger, whoever it might be. I'm fascinated by how much we've justified the decrease in basic social interactions today. I, other people have some thoughts on this. So Pat's calling from Phoenix, Arizona. Pat, what are your thoughts on self-checkouts today? I think we lost Pat. Paul from Mississippi's on the line. Paul, we'd love to hear your th thoughts. I hear you prefer self-checkouts. Why is that? The fact is, is there are two distinct advantages from the way we see it. One is that it reduces the number of people that touch your groceries that you bring into your house. 
not only that, I mean, you figure that the person in line before you and the person in line before them and on and on and on, that checkout person has touched all those groceries and they've all touched it. So it's a great way to spread stuff around because touching is, is uh, spreading germs. The other thing is is that you can bag it yourself, and, and a lot of times people who are bagging groceries don't take a lot of care, and you put stuff in uh, like, you know, perhaps meats. They have meat juices that carry bacteria and stuff in with other things that, you know, maybe would uh, something you might hand to a child. And so um, you can control that, and, and so there, there are two distinct advantages from our perspective the way we see it. So just a thought. Yeah, I definitely see your perspective, Paul. You know, if you are someone who's really concerned about people, not too many people touching your items, the grocery store or how things are packed. I get that, especially the whole packed thing, especially sometimes Costco drives me crazy how they pack things. I I look at them. I'm like, I'm 28 weeks pregnant. How do you expect me to carry this giant box out? I remember my mom when she was, you know, had us kids or when she was pregnant, she'd say, "Okay, and you're carrying my groceries out and putting them in the car, right? Because you do know I can't carry that. Or again, you know, something such as meat that could, you know, uh, contaminate other things. And I think, though, that's one of those moments where can we have that interaction, though? I've seen, hey, would you mind just putting the meat together or in a separate bag? I think that we feel uncomfortable even making those requests sometimes because we've lost that social dimension. Okay, Pat from Phoenix has a thought on self-checkouts and groceries as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on social media, or you can give me a call, 1-888-914-9149. Pat, what are your thoughts? Hi, Timory. Well, one thing is I totally agree with the social interaction that is so missing in so many areas of today in business or whatever. But the one thing that I dislike immensely, and it probably is an occasion of sin for me when I go into a store, and, you know, I know that from information that the checkers make good money. Now, whether there's less or not, I don't know. But I've been in when when there's people sitting in the evening and then you have to check out. And I said to a gal one time, I said, you know, I truly dislike this. And especially, I'm paying extra money for groceries. I'm paying taxes. I shouldn't have to do their job. I I shouldn't have mm-hmm. to do the job that is required to get my groceries. You know, unless oh, you're going to. Right. It right. just to yeah, me I think, is, is not yeah. right. That's not my job. Right. isn't that so funny how conditions we become you know when we're used to functioning a certain way and you have this mindset of this is my job to bag my groceries or not to and you do have places where they are charging less because they're predominantly or only self-checkout but as you said there is that moment of frustration when we're paying an astronomically higher price for groceries than ever before and now you're also expected to bag your groceries as well in addition to everything else i get the frustration it sounds like you are also very triggered by self-checkouts but i do think above all else the challenge with self-checkouts is we need to make sure that we're not gravitating toward them because we've already disconnected from the very basic and important human interactions that should be occurring in those moments of checking out or having your bags, uh, you know, put together. So those are just your thoughts. Thanks for joining me during our weekly happy hour. 
Have you ever prayed in front of an abortion clinic before? This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Going to talk about why we should and all can pray in front of an abortion clinic, your rights, as well as the safety. I'm also going to talk about Prop 1 in California and Prop 3 in Michigan, which are the opportunity for you, if you live in those states, to vote on the issue of abortion. And we can make a difference by talking to people. Join me Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.